Chapter One, Part Two of Nana by Emile Zola, translated by Burton Rasco. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. One, Part Two. But I know her," cried Steiner as soon as he saw Fauchery. "I have certainly seen her somewhere, at the casino, I think, and she was so drunk that she got locked up." "Well, I'm not quite sure," said the journalist. "I'm like you." I have certainly met her somewhere," he lowered his voice and added with a laugh, "at Old Tricot's, I dare say." "Of course, in some vile place," exclaimed Mignon, who seemed exasperated. "It is disgusting to see the public welcome in such a way the first filthy wench that offers. Soon there will not be a respectable woman left on the stage. Yes, I shall have to forbid Rose playing any more." Fauchery could not repress a smile. Meanwhile, the heavily shod crowd continued to pour down the stairs, and a little man in a cap said in a drawling voice, "Oh my, she is plump. You could eat her." In the lobby, two young men, with their hair exquisitely curled and looking very stylish, with their stuck-up collars turned slightly down in front, were quarrelling. One kept saying, "Vile, vile," without giving any reason, whilst the other retaliated with, "Stunning." Stunning, equally disdaining to explain, La Paloise liked her immensely. He, however, only ventured to observe that she would be much better if she cultivated her voice. Then Steiner, who had left off listening, seemed to wake up with a start. They must wait, though. Perhaps in the next acts everything would come to grief. The audience, though very lenient so far, was not yet smitten with the piece. Mignon swore no one would sit it through. And as Fauchery and La Paloise left them to go into the saloon, he took hold of Steiner's arm and, pressing close up to his shoulder, whispered in his ear, "Old boy, come and see my wife's costume for the second act. It is the limit." Upstairs, the foyer was brilliantly illuminated by three crystal gasoliers. The two cousins paused for a moment. The glass doors, standing wide open, showed them a wave of heads, which two contending currents whirled about in a continual eddy. They entered. Five or six groups of men, talking and gesticulating earnestly, stood their ground in spite of the crush. While others were walking up and down in rows, now and again turning sharply on their heels, which resounded on the waxed boards. To the right and left, women occupying the red velvet seats placed between the jasper columns watched the crowd as it passed with a weary air, as if exhausted by the intense heat. And behind them could be seen their chignons in the tall glasses decorating the walls. At the end of the saloon, a man with a very big belly was standing at the bar, drinking a glass of syrup. Fauchery had gone out on the balcony to get a breath of fresh air. La Faloise, who had been studying some photographs of actresses placed in frames, which alternated with the looking glasses between the columns, ended by following him. The row of gas jets in front of the theater had just been extinguished. It was dark and cool on the balcony, which appeared to be vacant, with the exception of one solitary figure. That of a young man who, enveloped in shadow, leant against the stone balustrade in the recess on the right, smoking a cigarette. Fauchery recognized Dagonet. They shook hands. Whatever are you doing here, old fellow? Asked the journalist, hiding in odd corners. You who, as a rule, never leave the stalls during a first night's performance. But I am smoking, as you see," answered Dagonet. Then Fauchery, so as to embarrass him, said. And the new star. What do you think of her? The remarks I have heard made about the house are rather disparaging. Oh, 
murmured Degenay, by men with whom she would not have anything to do. This was all the criticism he offered on Nana's talent. La Faloise, leaning forward, looked up and down the boulevard. The windows of a hotel and a club opposite were brilliantly lighted, while on the pavement a compact mass of customers occupied the tables of the Café de Madrid. Notwithstanding the lateness of the hour, the crowd was immense. Everyone had to walk slowly. A stream of people continually flowed from the Passage Jouffroy, and persons were obliged to wait five minutes sometimes before they could cross from one side of the road to the other, so great was the throng of vehicles. What animation, what noise! La Faloise, who had not yet ceased to be astonished at Paris, kept repeating. A bell ran, and the saloon rapidly emptied. Everyone hurried along the passages. The curtain had risen, but a crowd still streamed in, much to the disgust of those of the audience who were already seated. The latecomers hastened to their places with animated and attentive looks. La Faloise's first glance was for Gaga but he was astonished to notice by her side the tall fellow with light hair who during the first act had been in Lucy's stage-box. "'What did you say was the name of that gentleman?' he asked. Faucherie did not see the person meant at once. "'Ah, yes, La Bordette,' he said at last, in the same careless tone of voice as before. The scenery of the second act was a surprise. It represented a low-dancing establishment of the suburbs called the Boule Noire on a Shrove Tuesday. Some masqueraders, dressed in grotesque costumes, sang a lively strain, the chorus of which they accompanied by stamping their heels. The words and gestures, being not over-decorous and quite unexpected, amused the audience immensely and secured the honors of an encore. And it was into this place that the troop of gods, led astray by Iris, who falsely claimed to know the earth, had come to pursue their investigations. They were disguised so as to preserve their incognito. Jupiter appeared as King Dagobert, with his breeches turned wrong side out, and a huge tin crown on his head. Phoebus masqueraded as the postillion of Longjumeau, and Minerva as the Norman wet-nurse. Shouts of laughter greeted Mars, who wore a preposterous costume as a Swiss admiral. But the mirth became scandalous when Neptune, dressed in a blouse and tall cap, with little curls glued to his temples, dragged after him his slipshod shoes and said in an unctuous tone of voice, well, what next? When a fellow's handsome, he must allow himself to be adored. This elicited a few, oh, oh's, while the ladies slightly raised their fans. Lucy in her stage-box laughed so noisily that Caroline Equet entreated her to be quiet. From this moment the piece was saved and was even a great success. This carnival of the gods, Olympus dragged through the mud, religion and poetry alike scoffed at, struck the public as extremely witty. A fever of irreverence took possession of this intellectual first-night audience. Ancient legends were trodden underfoot and antique images were broken. Jupiter had a fine head, Mars was highly successful, royalty became a farce and the army a jest. When Jupiter, desperately smitten all of a sudden by the charms of a little laundress, broke into a wild can-can, and Simone, who played the part of the laundress, raised her foot on a level with the nose of the master of the gods, calling him, in such a funny manner, My fat old boy, a peal of mad laughter shook the house. While the others danced, Phoebus treated Minerva to some hot wine, and Neptune sat surrounded by some seven or eight women who stuffed him with cakes. The audience snatched at the faintest allusions, obscenities were discovered where none were intended, and the most inoffensive words were invested with a totally different meaning by the exclamations of the occupants of the stalls. 
It was long since the theatre-going public had wallowed in such disgusting foolery, and it took its fill. The action of the piece, however, advanced in spite of all this by-play. Vulcan, dressed in the latest style, only all in yellow, and with yellow gloves and a glass in his eye, was there in pursuit of Venus, who at last arrived dressed as a fishwoman, a handkerchief thrown over her head, her breasts protruding, and covered with huge gold ornaments. Nana was so white and so plump, and so natural in this part of a person strong in the hips and the gift of the gab, that she at once gained the entire audience. Rose Mignon, a delicious baby, with a baby bonnet on her head and in short muslin skirts, was quite forgotten, although she had just sung Diana's woes in a charming voice. The other, the big girl with her arms akimbo who clucked like a hen, was so full of life and the power of woman that the audience became fairly intoxicated. After this, no exception was taken at anything that Nana did. She was allowed to pose badly, to move badly, to sing every note false and forget her part. She had only to turn to the audience and smile to be treated with wild applause. Each time she gave her peculiar movement of the hips, the occupants of the stalls brightened up, and the enthusiasm rose from gallery to gallery up to the very roof, so that when she led the dance her triumph was complete. She was in her element as, with arms akimbo, she dragged Venus through the mire. The music, too, seemed written for her voice of the gutter, a music of reed-pipes, a sort of reminiscence of a return from the fair of St. Cloud, with the sneezes of the clarinets and the gambles of the flutes. Two concerted pieces were again encored. The waltz of the overture, that waltz with the saucy rhythm, returned and whirled the gods round and round. Juno, as a farmer's wife, caught Jupiter flirting with the washerwoman and spanked him. Diana, surprising Venus in the act of arranging a meeting with Mars, hastened to inform Vulcan of the time and place, when the latter exclaimed, I have my plan. The remainder of the act did not seem very clear. The god's inquiry terminated in a final gallopade, after which Jupiter, in a great perspiration all out of breath and having lost his crown, proclaimed that the little women of the earth were delicious and that the men alone were in the wrong. The curtain fell, and above the applause rose some voices shouting loudly, All! All! Then the curtain rose again, and the actors and actresses reappeared hand in hand. In their midst were Nana and Rose Mignon, bowing side by side. The applause was repeated, the claques surpassed their former efforts, and then the house slowly became half empty. I must go and pay my respects to Countess Mipa, said La Faloise. Very well, replied Faucherie, and you can introduce me. We can go outside afterwards. But it was not such an easy matter to reach the balcony boxes, as the crowd in the passages was almost impenetrable. To pass through the different groups it was necessary to use one's elbows rather freely. Leaning against the wall beneath a brass gas bracket, the stout critic was giving his opinion of the piece to an attentive circle. People, as they passed, lingered and told their friends in a low voice who he was. It was rumored that he had laughed during the whole act. However, he now showed himself very severe and talked of good taste and morality. Farther on, the critic with the thin lips was most favorable, but his remarks had an unpleasant aftertaste, like milk turned sour. Faucherie searched the different boxes with a glance through the small round windows in the doors. But the Count de Vendeuvre stopped him to ask him some questions. When he learnt that the two cousins intended paying their respects to the Mufas, he directed them to their box number seven, which he had just left. 
Then he whispered in the journalist's ear, I say, old fellow, this Nana is surely the girl we met one night at the corner of the Rue de Provence. Why, of course, you are right, exclaimed Faucherie. I was sure I had met her somewhere. La Faloise introduced his cousin to Count Muffat de Beuville, whose manner was cool in the extreme. But on hearing Faucherie's name, the Countess looked up quickly and complimented him on his articles in the Figaro in a well-turned phrase. Leaning against the velvet-colored balustrade, she half turned towards him with a graceful movement of her shoulders. They talked for a few minutes, and the conversation fell upon the exhibition. "'It will certainly be very fine,' said the Count, whose square face and regular features preserved a certain official gravity. "'I visited the Champ de Mars today, and I returned filled with wonder.' "'I am told, however, that it will not be ready in time,' observed La Faloise. "'Something has gone wrong.' "'It will be ready. The Emperor insists upon it,' interrupted the Count in his stern voice. Faucherie told gaily how he had been almost lost in the aquarium during its building one day when he had gone there in search of materials for an article. The Countess smiled. She looked from time to time about the house, raising an arm with its long white glove reaching to the elbow and fanning herself slowly. The seats were now mostly unoccupied. A few gentlemen who had remained in the stalls were reading the evening papers, and several women were receiving their friends much as if they were at home. There was now no sound above a well-bred whisper beneath the crystal gasolier, the brightness of which was dimmed by the fine dust raised by the stir at the end of the act. About the doors, some men lingered to inspect the few women who remained seated, and for a minute they stood quite motionless, stretching their necks and displaying their white shirt-fronts. "'We shall expect to see you next Tuesday,' said the Countess to La Valoise. And she extended her invitation to Faucherie, who thanked her with a low bow. The play was not alluded to, nor was the name of Nana pronounced. The Count's manner was so icy and dignified that one might have supposed him to be at a meeting of the corps législatif. He took occasion to say, as if to explain their presence, that his father-in-law had an especial fondness for the theatre. The door of the box had remained opened, and the Marquis de Choir, who had gone out to leave room for the visitors, now stood tall and erect in the doorway, his pale, flabby face shaded by his broad-brimmed hat as he followed with his dim eyes the women who passed. As soon as the Countess had given her invitation, Faucherie retired, feeling that under the circumstances it would not be in good taste to discuss the play. La Faloise left the box last. He had just noticed in the Count de Vendreuve's stage-box the fair-haired La Bordette quite at his ease and conversing intimately with Blanche de Sivry. "'I say,' said he as he joined his cousin, "'this La Bordette appears to know all the women. He's with Blanche now.' "'Know them all? Of course he does,' answered Faucherie coolly. "'Why, wherever have you sprung from, young man?' The passage was not nearly so crowded now. Faucherie was on the point of going down the stairs when Lucy Stewart called him. She was standing just outside the door of her box. The heat, she said, was intolerable inside. So, in company of Caroline Equet and her mother, she blocked up the whole width of the passage, crunching burnt almonds. One of the box openers was conversing with them in a maternal manner. Lucy began at once to pick a quarrel with the journalist. He was a nice fellow. He was in a precious hurry to go and see the other women, but he couldn't even come and ask them to have a drink. Then, suddenly dropping the subject, she said lightly, I say, old fellow, I think Nana a big hit. 
She wanted him to be in her box for the last act, but he escaped, promising to see them at the end of the piece. Outside, in front of the theatre, Faucherie and La Faloise lit their cigarettes. A small crowd blocked the pavement, formed of a part of the male portion of the audience who had come down the steps to breathe the fresh night air amidst the growing stillness of the boulevard. In the meanwhile, Mignon had dragged Steiner to the Café des Variétés. Seeing Nana's success, he spoke of her enthusiastically, all the time watching the banker from out of the corner of his eye. He knew him. Twice had he assisted him in deceiving Rose, and, when the caprice was over, had brought him back to her faithful and penitent. Inside the café, the two numerous customers were squeezing round the marble tables, and some men standing up were drinking hastily. The large mirrors reflected this mass of heads ad infinitum, and increased inordinately the size of the narrow saloon with its three gasoliers, its moleskin-covered seats, and its winding staircase draped with red. Steiner seated himself at a table in the outer room, which was quite open onto the boulevard, the frontage having been removed a little too early for the season. As Faucherie and his cousin passed, the banker stopped them. "'Come and take a glass of beer with us,' he said. He himself, however, was absorbed with an idea which had just occurred to him. He wanted to have a bouquet thrown to Nana. At length he called one of the waiters whom he familiarly named Augustus. Mignon, who was listening to all he said, looked at him so straight in the eyes that he became quite disconcerted as he faltered, "'Two bouquets, Augustus, and give them to one of the attendants.' one for each of the ladies at the right moment, you understand. At the other end of the room, with her head supported against the frame of a mirror, a girl, who could not have been more than eighteen, sat motionless before an empty glass, as though benumbed by a long and useless waiting. Beneath the natural curls of her beautiful hair appeared the face of a virgin with a pair of velvety eyes looking so gentle and honest. She wore a dress of faded green silk with a round hat which had been knocked in by sundry blows. The chilly evening air made her look quite white. Hello! Why, there's Satin, murmured Faucherie as he caught sight of her. La Faloise questioned him. Oh, she was nobody, only a wretched streetwalker. But she was so foul-mouthed it was rare fun to make her talk. And the journalist raised his voice. Whatever are you doing there, Satin? Wearing my guts out, she quietly replied without moving. The four men, highly delighted, burst out laughing. Mignon assured the others that there was no need to hurry. It would take at least twenty minutes to set up the scenery of the third act. But the two cousins, who had finished their beer, wished to return to the theatre. They felt cold. Then Mignon, left alone with Steiner, leaned both elbows on the table, and looking him full in the face, said, Well, then, it's quite understood. We will call on her, and I will introduce you. You know it's quite between ourselves. My wife need not know anything about it. Back in their places, Faucherie and La Faloise noticed in the second tier of boxes a very pretty woman very quietly dressed. She was accompanied by a solemn-looking gentleman, the head of a department at the Ministry of the Interior, whom La Faloise knew from having met him at the Mufas. As for Faucherie, he said he believed she was called Madame Robert, a worthy woman who had a lover, but never more than one, and he was always a highly respectable person. As they turned round, Dagonet smiled at them. Now that Nana had proved a success, he no longer kept himself in the background. He had just returned from wandering about the house and enjoying her triumph. The youngster, fresh from college, beside him had not once quitted his seat, 
so overpowering was the state of admiration to which the sight of Nana had plunged him. So that, then, was woman, and he blushed deeply and kept taking off and putting on his gloves mechanically. At last, as his neighbor had talked about Nana, he ventured to question him. Excuse me, sir, he said, but this lady, who is playing, do you happen to know her? Yes, a little, murmured Dagonet in surprise and with some hesitation. Then you know her address. The question came so abruptly and so strangely as addressed to him that Dagonet felt like slapping the lad's face. I do not, he answered coldly and turned his back. The youngster understood that he had been guilty of some impropriety. He blushed all the more and was mortified beyond expression. The three knocks resounded throughout the house, and some of the attendants, their arms full of opera cloaks and overcoats, were obstinately endeavoring to restore the various garments to their owners who were hastening back to their seats. The claque applauded the scenery, which represented a grotto in Mount Etna, hollowed out of a silver mine, with sides that glittered like newly coined crown pieces, at the back was Vulcan's forge, with all the tints of a sunset. In the second scene, Diana arranged everything with the god, who was to pretend to go on a journey so as to leave the coast clear for Venus and Mars. Then scarcely was Diana left alone than Venus arrived. A thrill ran through the audience. Nana was next to naked. She appeared in her nakedness with a calm audacity, confident in the all-powerfulness of her flesh. A slight gauze enveloped her, her round shoulders, her Amazonian breasts, the rosy tips of which stood out straight and firm as lances, her broad hips swayed by the most voluptuous movements, her plump thighs, in fact, her whole body could be divined, nay, seen white as the foam beneath the transparent covering. It was Venus rising from the sea with no other veil than her locks. And when Nana raised her arms, the glare of the footlights displayed to every gaze the golden hairs of her armpits. There was no applause. No one laughed now. The grave faces of the men were bent forward, their nostrils contracted, their mouths parched and irritated. A gentle breath, laden with an unknown menace, seemed to have passed over all. Out of this laughing girl there had suddenly emerged a woman, appalling all who beheld her, crowning all the follies of her sex, displaying to the world the hidden secrets of inordinate desire. Nana still preserved her smile, but it was the mocking one of a destroyer of men. The devil, said Faucherie to La Faloise. Mars, in the meantime, hurrying to the meeting with his big hat and plume, found himself caught between the two goddesses. Then there ensued a scene in which Bruyère played very ingeniously. Fondled by Diana, who wished to make a last attempt to bring him back into the right path before delivering him up to Vulcan's vengeance, cajoled by Venus, whom the presence of her rival stimulated, he abandoned himself to all these endearments with the happy expression of a donkey in a field of clover. The scene ended with a grand trio, and it was at this moment that an attendant entered Lucy Stewart's box and threw two enormous bouquets of white lilac onto the stage. Everyone applauded and Nana and Rose Mignon curtsied their acknowledgments, while Spruyère picked up the flowers. Some of the occupants of the stalls turned smilingly in the direction of the box occupied by Steiner and Mignon. The banker, all inflamed, moved his chin convulsively as though something had stuck in his throat. The acting which followed quite took the house by storm. Diana, having gone off furious, 
Venus, seated on a bed of moss, at once called Mars to her side. Never before had so warm a scene of seduction been risked upon the stage. Nana, her arms around Prullière's neck, was slowly drawing him to her, when Fontan, grotesquely imitating the most awful fury, exaggerating the looks of an outraged husband who surprises his wife in the very act, appeared at the back of the grotto. In his hands he held his famous iron net. For a moment he poised it like a fisherman about to throw, then, by some ingenious device, Venus and Mars were ensnared. The net covered them and held them fast in their guilty posture. Then arose a murmur resembling one huge sigh. A few hands clapped, and every opera glass was fixed on Venus. Little by little, Nana had gained possession of the audience, and now every man succumbed to her. The lust she inspired, similar to an animal in heat, had grown more and more till it filled the house. Now her slightest movements fanned the desire. The raising of her little finger caused all the flesh beholding her to quiver. Backs were arched, vibrating as though the muscles, like so many fiddle-strings, were being played on by some invisible hand. On the napes of the outstretched necks the down fluttered beneath the warm and errant breath escaped from some women's lips. Faucherie beheld in front of him the youngster fresh from college start from his seat in his agitation. He had the curiosity to look at the Count de Vendeuve, who was very pale with tightly pressed lips. The stout Steiner, whose apoplectic face seemed bursting. La Bordette examining through his eyeglass with the astonished look of a jockey admiring a thoroughbred mare. Dagonet, whose ears were flaming red and trembling with enjoyment. Then, for an instant, he turned round and was amazed at what he saw in the Mufas box. Behind the countess, who was looking pale and serious, the count had raised himself up, his mouth wide open, and his face blurred with red blotches, whilst beside him in the shadow, the troubled eyes of the Marquis de Choir had become cat-like in appearance, full of phosphorescence and flecked with gold. The heat was suffocating. Even the hair weighed heavily on the perspiring heads. During the three hours that the piece had lasted, the foul breath had given the atmosphere an odor of human flesh. In the blaze of light, the dust now appeared thicker, and seemed suspended, motionless beneath the big crystal gasolier. The audience, tired and excited, seized with those drowsy midnight desires which murmur their wishes in the depths of alcoves, vacillated and was gradually becoming dazed. And Nana, Facing this half-swooning crowd, these fifteen hundred persons packed one above the other, and sinking with emotion and the nervous excitement of an approaching finale, remained victorious with her marble flesh, her sex alone strong enough to conquer them all and remain scatheless. The play was rapidly drawing to an end. In answer to Vulcan's triumphant calls, all Olympus defiled before the lovers, uttering cries of stupefaction or indulging in broad remarks. Jupiter said, "'My son, I consider you are very foolish to call us to see this.' Then there was a sudden change of feeling in favor of Venus. The deputation of cuckolds, again introduced by Iris, beseeched the master of the gods not to give heed to their petition, for, since their wives passed their evenings at home, they made their lives unbearable, so they preferred to be deceived and happy, which was the moral of the piece. Venus, therefore, was set free.' Vulcan obtained a judicial separation. Mars made it up again with Diana. 
Jupiter, for the sake of peace and quietness at home, sent the little washerwoman into a constellation. And Cupid was at last released from his prison, where he had been making paper fowls instead of conjugating the verb to love. The curtain fell on an apotheosis, the deputation of cuckolds kneeling and singing a hymn of gratitude to Venus, smiling and exalted in her sovereign nudity. The spectators had already risen from their seats and were hastily making for the doors. The authors were named, and there was a double call in the midst of a thunder of applause. The cry, Nana, Nana, re-echoed again and again. Then, before the house was fairly empty, it became quite dark. The footlights were turned out, the lights of the gasolier were lowered, and long grey coverings were drawn over the gilding of the balconies, and the heat and the noise suddenly gave place to a death-like stillness and an odour of dust and mildew. At the door of her box stood the Countess Mifa, wrapped in her furs and gazing into the darkness as she waited for the crowd to pass away. In the passages, the jostled attendants were fast losing their senses among the piles of cloaks and other garments. Faucherie and La Faloise had hurried to see the people come out. In the vestibule, several gentlemen were waiting in a row, while down the double staircase descended two interminable and compact processions. Steiner, led away by Mignon, was one of the first to leave. The Count de Vendeuvre went off with Blanche de Sivry on his arm. For a moment, Gaga and her daughter seemed embarrassed, but La Bordette hastened to secure them a cab and gallantly saw them into it. No one noticed Dagonet leave. As the youngster fresh from college, with his cheeks all aglow, bent upon waiting at the stage door, hastened to the Passage des Panoramas, the gate of which he found closed, Satin, loitering on the pavement, came and grazed him lightly with her skirts, but he, quite broken-hearted, roughly declined her advances and disappeared in the crowd with tears of powerless longing in his eyes. Some of the spectators lighting cigars went off humming the song, When Venus Takes an Evening Stroll. Satin had returned to the Café des Variétés, where Augustus was allowing her to eat the lumps of sugar left by the customers. A stout man, who was greatly excited, having just quitted the theatre, at length took her off into the darkness of the now gradually hushed boulevard. The crowd still continued to pour down the double staircase. La Faloise was waiting for Clarisse, and Faucherie had promised to escort Lucy Stewart with Caroline Equet and her mother. They now arrived, monopolizing a whole corner of the vestibule to themselves and laughing loudly, just as the Mifas passed, looking very frigid. At that moment, Bordenave, opening a little door, appeared, and obtained from Faucherie a distinct promise of a notice. He was covered with perspiration, his face as red as though he had had a sunstroke, and looking intoxicated with success. "'Your piece will run for two hundred nights at least,' said La Faloise obligingly. "'All Paris will visit your theatre.' But Bordenave, his rage getting the better of him, indicated, with a rapid movement of his chin, the crowd that filled the vestibule that mob of men with parched mouths and sparkling eyes, still inflamed with their passionate longing for Nana, and violently exclaimed, Say, my bravo, can't you? You pig-headed animal! End of chapter 1